Happy Monday! What did you get up to this weekend? Well, actually, I catered a wedding shower. Cool. That sounds like a fun hobby. Yeah, I used to think of it as a hobby too, but realized I've found my true passion. Effective Friday, I'm taking the leap and making it my new full-time gig. Cupcake anyone? Work-life balance, the great resignation, and the future of work. It's what we're talking about today. This is the Insights at Work podcast. Jeff, are you baking in the lunchroom again? Let's dive in. Welcome to the Insights at Work podcast, the podcast that looks at what's happening in the HR world, takes your questions and studies the research to help HR experts move forward. It's prepared by HR experts for HR experts. For the last year, we've launched a whole new language around the world of work. Terms like the hybrid workforce, the great resignation, the great realization, the great attrition, and the great attraction are now commonplace in our vernacular. And that's just to name a few. But I think you get the point. Now, there is one theme that links all of these terms without the word great in it, and that's work-life balance. And boy, does that term have a lot to do with our future of work. So for this episode of the Insights at Work podcast, we've gotten author, podcast host, talk radio personality, president of the Challenge Factory, and most likely North America's leading expert on the future of work, Lisa Taylor. Lisa, I've always been a big follower of yours on this very subject, but for those in the audience who may not know who you are, why don't you fill them in? Thanks so much for having me, Jeff, and for following our work at Challenge Factory. My passion for the future of work comes really from my own experience as a senior manager within one of the world's largest technology companies. More than a decade ago, it became really clear to me that technology wasn't the only thing that was causing massive change and disruption within workplaces. The people and the way they were navigating their own careers was also changing. And so since 2012, when I, la- when I launched Challenge Factory, I've been researching and tracking how the human side of the future of work has been shifting, offering enormous competitive advantage to the organizations who pay attention to the people at work and not just the technology that enables the work. Lisa, as I'm looking at you right now through my screen, it looks like you're at home and me, I'm recording from what I like to call the ADP Canada Payroll and HR Bureau, Now, we've seen pandemic restrictions lift across the country with many remote workers back in the office. Some place that estimate around 53%. We did a study in the summer that showed that of those who haven't returned to work, 29% were planning to return by the end of 2021. Now, I think that number has changed. I think it's lower. I also think the world of flexible work, it's here to stay. Lisa, what are you seeing out there in the workplace? I think there's two things that's really important to pay attention to. The first is our obsession with dates. So what will happen by January 1st? What will happen by June 1st? When will this date be? As opposed to with the behavior or the longer term implications. So I'm not surprised to see the numbers shifting and changing by the end of 2021. And I'm not sure that the by the end that that date was ever actually a real milestone. That's the first thing that I would say whenever I see data that's really hanging on behavior change by a date. 
I think the second thing that's really important to keep in mind is that there was a whole world of flexible work that existed before the pandemic. And what's new is that we've just come through this massive experiment where entire workforces shifted to being remote all at the same time. You mentioned that you think the numbers that you were indicating might have changed, and that's what I'm seeing in the workplace, that we're continuing to see them fluctuate and change as conditions change and leaders change, strategies change, new information gets absorbed. And I think like the focus on the date, I think focusing on what the right answer is might also lead us down the wrong path. Instead, I think the right blend across what we call the space spectrum from fully remote to fully office-based is really a question of culture, not real estate. And I think leadership teams need to shift the focus from operations and real estate-based planning to more future-focused culture and strategic decision-making. Who do they want to be as a company? And what work do they want to be doing? And then how do the plans and timelines for how you return, whoever's coming back to the office on whatever schedule and structure, make those align to the culture and the work that you want people focused on, as opposed to having real estate decisions driving strategy. I think that's one of the things that we're really watching organizations start to grapple with and realize they may have this the wrong way around. Yeah, absolutely. I think that when I look at a lot of the companies who have succeeded during the pandemic with their flexible workforce, I think a lot of them were probably early adopters in that hybrid workspace. And I also, I'm a strong believer that work isn't where you are, it's what you do. Absolutely right, 100%. And there's so much that goes into that. I mean, in that focus of what you do, it's easy to say, but then when you take a look at, okay, so what's the agenda item at the executive table or at your management table, or when you're looking at your work, how much as a leader is your work focused on what people do as opposed to how they do it? That's another way that you can start to get an indication of whether you're actually walking that walk or you know that that's the right way to approach this, but in the busyness of every day, the tasks that are actually getting your attention are not the people in the work, it's everything else. We saw something almost unheard of with our latest insight survey, and you probably saw those findings in the media. I know a lot of our listeners had. Now, what was especially exciting about that survey was that, well, we looked to you for some insight before we launched it. Now, the finding that really opened my eyes was that while salary and benefits have historically topped the list of incentives for employees, this study showed that work-life balance took the number one spot for the first time ever as the top incentive that employees and candidates look to from their employer. So, as Canada's future of work expert, why do you think we're seeing this now? And do you expect the desire for work-life balance over salary and benefits to increase or subside? First, it was fantastic to collaborate with you before the launch of the survey. That is a rare and precious opportunity for us to be able to travel the whole journey of, uh, of those kinds of studies, and it's very appreciated. And then to have this opportunity to dig into some of the more intriguing results. The shift to the value of work-life balance over salary is a really interesting one. So within the data, those that were contemplating a change were more likely to fall into this camp, while those who were planning on remaining in their current role were still indicating that salary is king. And I think that this is an indicator that these last couple of years have increased Canadians' awareness of career ownership 
that they have choices and that there are different factors that they can take into account when they're making the choice at the moment when they start to feel ready to make choices. They can want and need different things from their work and maybe do things differently than the way their parents did or some of their other colleagues might have in the past. I should say that this trend is something that we also see among employers who are in a position and employees who are in a position to be able to value their time, freedom and flexibility. So it's not necessarily consistent across the board. There is absolutely a threshold of adequate compensation that has to be attained before you can start to make this kind of trade-off. But the fact that we're starting to see the trade-off says to me that Canadians are not just thinking about job title and salary when they're reviewing their work, they're taking a step back and taking a more holistic view of what is work and how does that fit into the spectrum of work, life and learning, which is the field of career development where I come from. You know, one thing that I found super interesting that I've always wondered, and we didn't look at it in the survey because it's really kind of too far out of the scope of HR and that now I really, I think home ownership is outside of the scope of a lot of people. Maybe a lot of people are finally realizing I'm probably not going to own a home. So my priorities are really changing. So I'm going to focus on other things that I'm going to get a lot of value from in my life. It's interesting that you pull that in because we're currently working on a project that is looking across the country, coast to coast to coast, at providing better labor market information to Canadians that are making career choices. And so at the heart of that project is a really critical question, which is what is labor market information? And what gets included in that? So is it is it jobs? Is it salary information? Is it job titles? Is it availability of daycare? Is it housing prices? What's all of the information that Canadians actually think about and use when they're making career choices? It's interesting that housing prices has made its way into a careers conversation. And I think that just shows the complexity of data that people need access to when they're making these choices. I mentioned the term the great resignation. Some have called it the great realization. Now, if you look on LinkedIn to me, it appears like more colleagues than ever are leaving their role for another, sometimes for something completely different in a completely different sector. Our research showed that 63% of Canadians have started thinking about their next career move, but 51% either haven't started thinking about it or just starting to think about it. Now, the ones that are ready to move, ready for action, that's 11%. So what are your thoughts behind these numbers? Are people ready for change? And what do you think employers and HR professionals should be paying attention to? I think this is just further evidence of the increase of career awareness and career ownership among employees. And that is something that HR professionals and managers should be paying a lot of attention to. The relationship and dynamic between employer and employee, who's in charge and who follows, who gets to set the path and who follows the path, that's shifting. And if Canadians are taking more ownership of their career, then managers need to manage differently than they had in the past. I think it also shows that new options are now available. So I'm not surprised to see that while there isn't a huge number ready to make the change, I'll come to that in a second, there's a lot that are considering it. And even before the pandemic, for, for decades, there's been studies that say up to 70% of workplaces, if they were offered another job somewhere else, might consider it. So the number 63% isn't so far out of whack from what we've seen in the past. 
But I think what has happened is that we've seen that there's an incredible awareness of just what else might be possible now. New ways of working, connection to employers that aren't local. We've also seen an incredible increase in the amount of online learning that's taken place over the pandemic. People have used the time to build new skills and they may not have necessarily done it through their workplace learning solutions. They may have gathered skills that takes them in a totally new career area and that's got them thinking about what else might they do, even if they're not ready to move right now. I think it's actually an incredible story of career ownership among the Canadian population that we're watching in real time unfold. And as a career development professional, the fact that only 11% are ready for action, I think also speaks volumes. In Canada, we don't teach career ownership well. Careers are right at the intersection of work, life, learning and identity, who we are. And we kind of expect people to be able to figure out how to evaluate their own skills and interests and then align that with continually shifting labor market dynamics all on their own. But there's more to it than just using a LinkedIn or a Microsoft Word template to create your resume and tossing it out on a job board. We often associate who we are with what we do. And so the actual step of deciding to move forward or make a change in your career, it's a very personal decision. It's not a transactional decision in any way. Lisa, last week, McKinsey came out with a study and it focused on the great attrition and the great attraction. So they looked to better understand what employees are running from and what they might be running to. Now, the stat that really stood out to me, and I think telegraphs an increase in future increased attrition, is that employees are willing to quit without a job lined up for them. In fact, 36% of respondents to that study who had quit in the past six months did so without having a new job in hand. Now, that's pretty brave, and it's definitely unheard of in my generation. What do you see in that stat? What I find interesting about the study overall was that it really focused in on what was causing people to leave. That employees are looking to be more relational, while employers are responding with things that are transactional, was one of the key findings in that study. And I think it really comes back to the story that I told at the very beginning about the origins of my work and why I find this work so important. You know, in an era where future of work discussions are typically focused on technology, sometimes real estate these days, it's often the human relationships within organizations that actually keep your workforce happy, engaged, productive, performing, striving. You know, retention is about leadership and culture. Studies are showing that one of the leading indicators of which organizations are having employees stay and which organizations are participating in this great resignation actually has a lot to do with how employees have been treated over the last two years. What has communication been like through the pandemic? How have relationships either been left to be fostered or have languished? The fact that people are choosing to leave without something solid lined up speaks volumes on just how willing they are to walk away from relationships where there's no payoff, there's no emotional connection anymore. And so luckily, paying attention to people, investing in being intentional in your relationships, treating everyone's career as something that is personal to them, that's something that organizations can do. They could start, you know, 10 minutes after this podcast ends by thinking about 
how could they do that better and immediately see their retention rates go up. It's not just because it's good practice. It's because as we're seeing, it's it's really good business. People leaving because they don't feel that they have a good relationship with you is really expensive. You know, absolutely. One thing I'm so lucky because I get to participate in these podcasts and I get to meet so many smart and clever and insightful people like you, Lisa. And, and I always feel selfishly that, wow, I'm the one who benefits from these podcasts more than anybody. And one thing that I've noticed is that whether you're recruiting, whether you're onboarding, whether you're doing learning and development, an HR team can always tailor that experience and that content to that single employee. And that is what creates the bond and increases the loyalty and engagement with that employee. It's true. And at the same time, I can almost hear people listening to us who are managers and who say, I'm tired. Like that sounds exhausting. Having to do this one by one by one, just give me the elevator statement that I need to give to my team because I'm burnt out. The burden of what's happened over the last number of months and years on managers is extreme and it needs attention too. And I think I'd respond to that in two ways. The, the first is those managers are also employees. They get to be employees as well as managers. Everyone in the organization gets to be an employee too and crave that kind of relationship with their own manager. So we need to think about what it is that we want and need from the relationships all around us in the organization and how can we foster that? What action can we take to start to make that happen? The second comes from a conversation I was just having this morning with an executive in a, a, a massive enterprise, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of employees. And uh, he was saying that solutions that address employees' needs on a personal basis won't scale. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges that we need to think through. We need to have a lot of courage and a lot of trust that the managers that have those teams of 10, those teams of 20 inside of our organizations, we are massive organizations of small teams. And that we can provide our managers with some freedom and flexibility to be able to be personal with their staff. That's why they're there. That's why we don't just have all 10,000 people in a division report to the senior person and just call it a day. We need to be able to use trust and courage to make sure that those personal connections are happening. And where we're worried that the message won't be consistent, we need to think about, well, why? And what can we do to enable it so that we can still have personal relationships? and scale. We really are part of massive organizations with small teams. People are really valuing that personable, that welcoming, that empathetic experience and environment that a manager can provide. And if you're part of this giant team and they're not, you're not given that environment, you're going to look elsewhere for that environment. Exactly, because my work is a commodity at that stage. Right? If I'm processing paper or running a marketing campaign or I'm a clerk in the accounting department or a salesperson on my beat, if I don't have anything unique about the relationship that I have or the culture of the company, if there's nothing more than the way that I go about doing my work to hold me to you, that's portable. That's on me. I can take that and go and find somewhere else. You know, you had been asking about some of the McKinsey study and what they were seeing about what has people leave and what has people uh, being retained within uh, organizations or redirecting their careers. And who's leaving is really important. 
And I think that we need to break that down into three different categories of job leavers. So my work shows that the, the three categories each need their own attention and their own strategies. So the first and most significant is everyone that's been in a frontline job. And frontline job, by that I don't necessarily just mean healthcare workers, education workers, uh, first responders, you know, the people that we really and deservedly so have been celebrating as first as frontline, but the people in each organization that are on the frontline. It could be the communications team that's had to rapidly respond and respond and respond and respond as people continue to change the message and, and things pivot all the time. Could be the HR staff who really were not ready for 18 months of workforce crisis every single day in every department all at the same time remotely. So anybody could really be in a role that's technically a frontline role for that organization. And that's where the burnout and the stress really is causing the effect of them seeing their department or their team, whatever they're loyal to, the organization through the crisis. And when it's at a point that they think it's, all, it's in someone else's hands, saying, you know what, I am stepping away. I, I am burnt and I need a break. Some of them will come back, they'll take a break and they'll come back to the same kind of work and others will decide they need a wholesale change. But those people leaving work are actually more of a comment on how we manage crises over a long period of time, having this extended state of alertness and uh, lack of security and how we handle workplace wellness. That's really what that's a comment about rather than any particular job or sector where there's a trend. I don't think it's a healthcare trend. I think it's a burnout and crisis management trend. And I think we would see that anytime anyone has been extending in a crisis for a long period of time. Yeah, Tammy, it's like you're reading my mind because when I read the McKinsey study, one of the stats that really jumped out to me was that of those, of those employees who were quitting without having a new job, the biggest cohort was healthcare and social assistance workers. 42% of the people that said, I'm gonna leave without a job were healthcare versus 25% who were in a white collar position. And I think there's a distinction too that I really wanna make sure that, you know, we say white collar or professionals, some of those people like the examples I gave have been in those situations. I mean, the staffers that have to write the speeches for politicians, I think about that a lot. Because they've, you know, they've had a, a press conference every single day that's always high stakes. No one ever likes what the message is and they constantly have to revise. I can only imagine what that job has been like. But we would say that's a professional white collar job. I imagine quite a few of them are actually pretty burnt out and pretty ready for a break. There's two other types of people that are leaving the job market, though. And I think that they need attention, too. The first is those that like we were saying before, have realized there's new options and they've developed new skills or they've realized there's something more important to them than the job and the way that their work was structured. It's a candidate's market at the moment if they want to go looking for something else. And so they're seeing that and they're stepping away even though they don't have something lined up because they feel secure enough and they have confidence that they're going to be okay and that they would rather step away at this moment than continue. It speaks volumes of the culture of where they currently are. The last category really doesn't get a lot of attention at all. And those are people who have left the workforce without another choice, without moving somewhere else, because they've been facing an impossible choice. 
So like they have to decide, should I continue working or have what I consider safe daycare for my children? Or maybe my parent used to be in a long-term care home, but we didn't feel safe with that anymore, so we've moved them home. And now someone needs to look after that parent until we come up with a new solution. These workers are also a part of the great resignation, but their motivation for leaving and why they don't have another job lined up is very different. And that actually talks to the intersection of where work and life just became too hard to navigate. The trade-offs became too great, and so they had to choose to withdraw. And we need to pay attention to that category of worker as well. When we're talking about retention and the great attraction, it's not just important to talk about work-life balance. I think that there's a rise in the want for employees to feel aligned with their employer's purpose, even when they're working remotely and feel as though they're part of a community. Do you see this sentiment playing out as a factor in our future of work? A hundred percent. There is no question that the alignment of mission and purpose matters. If you think about it, with the proliferation of employee resource groups and corporate volunteerism and all of the other programs that were running inside of companies before the pandemic, companies had major sources of community engagement for their staff. It wasn't just about what happened on work teams when work was happening. We had built whole social structures around keeping people involved and engaged as a community, proud of the brand, out in the community and doing good work, all kinds of things. But with the shift to remote work, it disconnected and it disrupted that, um, that mechanism. And any non-job related connection stopped. Our interactions became much more intentional and transaction and work focused as opposed to relational and social. So it's no surprise that people are missing that because if it was plugged in through their employer and now it isn't, well, what tethers them to society and community? Where do they find community when everyone's remote and sitting in their houses? So that generates enormous opportunity for other community-based groups and organizations who have seen an influx of people coming back to them because that void is now existing because employers are no longer filling it. So we've seen nonprofits and community-based groups seeing all kinds of new volunteers and people wanting to hang around in ways that they didn't have time for or they didn't value in the past. But companies don't have to be the only source of these connections. And so employers, now that we know this and we've remembered this, employees need to pay attention to how do they maintain these relationships so that they keep connected to their staff. But the shift to remote work broke many of the workplace rituals that foster relationship building. So we talk about missing water cooler discussions or the coffee grab with coworkers, and these things are significant, but really, you know, the people you see in the parking lot, the way you get silly at 4 p.m. on a Friday on a just before a long weekend, all of these things have meaning beyond just the actual act as it's taking place. And that's why Zoom water coolers or Zoom coffees or silly games that you do remotely just don't satisfy you in the same way. It's because it's the ritual, it's the routine, it's what you can expect, and it's the community building that happens around those things that actually keeps you connected to the people you're working with beyond what you know about them from a work perspective. So as we shift to a hybrid work environment, this is a whole new ball game because we've managed office-based relationships, we've managed remote-based relationships, 
Hybrid is an entirely different model where we need entirely different tools for engagement, management, facilitation, consideration of each employee. We need to have a lot of learning among our manager team of how do you do this with hybrid teams, not all remote or all in office. When I look at my relationships with my coworkers, still the strongest ones are the ones where we work together day in and day out in the office before the pandemic started. One of the things I was reading recently said that we may have had more frequent conversations, but we actually know each other less because we haven't really had the chance to kind of just sit around and talk about things that have nothing to do with the task at hand. We're so focused on fast time. You know, this is why I'm here. This is what we need to achieve. Let's go through this together. And we may be spending time together, but it's not slow time where we actually are just hanging out and having a chance to really feel for who is this person that I'm working with. So Lisa, we've seen right to disconnect legislation adopted in France and recently introduced as proposed legislation that still needs to be voted on in Ontario. This would be a game changer for businesses. Now I understand, you know, we had a need for unions when we had unreasonable working conditions, but is this necessary now in our day and age? And are we on the right track? So legislation to protect work-life balance like the right to disconnect legislation that we're talking about is a really strong clue that the culture within workplaces has become misaligned with the values of broader society when legislation starts to impact behaviors inside of the workplace there's a disconnect of value that someone has decided the government has decided needs realignment it indicates that if we're shaping a future of work that we all want, there needs to be more attention on certain aspects of how the world of work is impacting workers. So I wanna just talk for a minute about the importance of noticing clues and why this is a clue about a distinction in values. In business school, we're taught to solve problems as if they're puzzles. There's a picture on the box, you put in the border, you fill in all the pieces, and as long as you have all of the pieces, the boundaries are firmly defined. You can solve the problem. It looks like the box. You can take great reward in knowing that you've solved the problem. And methodologies to solve problems in business are often like that, right? Know your goal, set the boundaries, gather the resources, assemble the pieces, celebrate. But when we're shaping the future, we can't treat the future like a puzzle. There's no picture on the box. No one has defined the boundaries. They keep changing all the time. We never have all of the pieces. So instead, we need to approach problems about shaping the future of work as if it's a mystery. We need to use a scientific approach where we look for clues. We set hypotheses and then we watch behavior to see what's actually unfolding and what else should we be considering. So that's where this legislation to me, the actual legislation itself, I'm not sure it's gonna achieve the intended result, I don't even know if it's actually gonna be incredibly impactful or important over the course of time, but as a clue to where we may need to pay more attention to how values are aligned to what society actually wants in work and life, I think it's a pretty strong clue. And people's reaction to it, the positive reaction from workers without really thinking through all the implications and just how complicated that actually would be and how much agency it takes away from being able to be really flexible in my own work is also a clue that there's something about this at the values level that strikes a chord. I really want to pick your brain on this, this question. And 
we've never seen so many different generations working with each other under one roof. Well, a theoretical roof, let's say. My team was talking about this because we have, we have a small team, but we're all from different generations. What demographic trends are you seeing and what do you forecast to happen in the terms of the aging workforce for the future of work? So first and foremost, I reject ideas that we need to separate and distinguish one generation from another in terms of how work gets done. We don't assign work that way. We don't pass work from this generation and then in the, they're gonna pass it to the next generation. So we need to be integrated in the way that we look at our workforce and treat everyone for the characteristics that they, that they display within their work. That said, Canada and the rest of the Western world is experiencing an enormous talent revolution. It's the name of my book. And that's where a large percentage of our potential workforce is being discounted because they are nearing the age of retirement. So they're stalling in their careers and they are finding few opportunities to grow and advance. And this is starting at around age 50, which matters a great deal because when the retirement age was set at 65, it was the 1930s and life expectancy was only 62. So today we have an 83 year life expectancy and we start to count people out at 50. It's really like taking a 23-year-old, ignoring them completely, and not investing in anything they're interested, giving them training, seeing that they have potential until they're 43. And then at 43, wondering why they're checked out, disengaged, not up to date in their skills, not particularly inspired in their work. If we discount people at 50 and they remain productive in our workforce as they should well into their late 60s and 70s, they're like that 23-year-old that we've abandoned and we would never do that. But we're doing it every single day with a huge, huge number of people within our workforce. It is expensive and a waste of resources. And the reason that they're checked out is because of our behavior. So what compounds this issue as if lost productivity and potential isn't a strong enough business case, is that we then assign those people that are in their 50s and 60s to be the mentors for our younger employees. So now we create this intergenerational relationship that permeates a culture where your career has a best before date all the way through the entire organization because the younger employees see what's happening to their mentor. They can see what's going on with their own advancement. And then they start to think, this is not a place that I wanna be. I don't wanna become my mentor. I wanna learn from my mentor, but this is not a good place to be the mentor. And so then they move on and we start to, cry, we start to challenge their loyalty and their values. Really, if we were to focus on fixing what career paths look like for people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, they're active, they're vibrant, they're learning new skills all the time, just like younger employees, and they have enormous potential. If we get over our own ageist views about aging, stop giving each other terrible 50th birthday cards, and fix the top of our workforce demographically, a lot of the retention issues and culture issues that we're experiencing through middle management and through our younger employees will actually go away. It's the fastest, cheapest way 
to fix your culture and to re-engage your staff. But instead, we throw money, time, energy, and effort at our youngest employees, hoping that if we bring them on board with some kind of cool program, they'll carry that with them through their career. But that's going to take decades. And we don't have that kind of time or money. We did a podcast on reskilling and future-proofing your workforce. And the most, you are so right when you say the most cost-effective tactic that you can do to re to ensure that you've got this great talent pipeline is to look at your entire workforce, the more senior, the the middle and the junior, and reskill them. And and maybe they're passionate about they want to do something different. Provide them that new set of skills. They've got that corporate memory. They know how things are done. They've got relationships established in the organization. You know what? Just improve their skills a bit. So we call that broken talent escalators. And it explains the entire system and what organizations and frontline managers can do really practically to take those steps. Because the truth of the matter is, whether you reskill them or not, they're reskilling all the time. There isn't a single job that hasn't significantly changed in how work gets done over the last 10 years. So employees are continually reskilling, even if they maintain the same job title. They can do it and they're doing it all the time. And so you may as well capitalize on the fact that this is a huge potential that is way less costly than acquiring all kinds of new employees. Now, before we wrap up today, let me ask you this last question. Employees have expressed a number of concerns about going back to the office, including safety, sharing space with others, longer work days and childcare. We mentioned this earlier. We already know that it's caused some workers to leave urban areas for quiet, setting outside of the city and in Canada some media outlets are reporting on something called the great regret and that's where people are rethinking did they do the right thing and they're returning to the city what are your thoughts on the mass exodus and the fact that really a lot of us you know what we're mo we're mobile and we can work for any employer anywhere in the world is there going to be that big return to the big bright lights of the big bright city? I think the jury is still out on that. I think that we need to remember we're still in this crisis. It's not over. Workforces aren't back in the office yet in mass scale. Uh, the different parts of our country and parts of the United States are opening and closing in different ways at different times. And I think we need to be a little bit patient before we declare the, the end goal or what the final answer is going to be. But that doesn't mean that there aren't creative ways that we can watch for the clues. And I think that that's really the important thing that we need to be doing. And I think more than even asking people, what do you want or what do you think? At this moment in time with all of the variables, I'm not sure how anyone could actually know all of the different implications of the question that they're being asked. But we can observe behaviors. We can start to see where people start to shift behaviors back to more urban patterns or settle in. It takes time to get used to a rural environment when you've been in an urban environment. Research will say sometimes it takes up to three years. So will people abandon before they have a chance to really settle in? They might. Or might we find that after they've gone through the crisis and had a chance to recover and get their feet under them and really get to know their new community who they probably don't know yet, Will they stay where they are? I think the jury's still out on those decisions. And I think employers need to give people the time to figure out where they're going to be. Is there anything impactful that you haven't talked about today that you wanted to share, Lisa? 
I think the only thing that I would say is it builds on what we were just talking about. I think people need to give themselves a bit of a break. I think we need to step away from being focused on what's the date, what's the answer, is this the policy, let's defer until we know for sure. Let's use trust and courage to recognize that we're going to have to experiment our way out of this crisis and we may not get it right the very first time, but if it's grounded in core values and if we're spending time explaining to our employees why we're doing what we're doing, not just what we're doing, we'll find that our community will come back and come with us. So I think we need to give ourselves a bit of a break on who has the best answer and instead just really focus on what are the values of this company steer us to do and how can we live true to those? And I think that's the best way to navigate from here forward. Awesome. Now, where can listeners get a hold of you? So I'm at Challenge Factory. We're based physically in Toronto, but you can find me at challengefactory.ca and on Twitter at at change paths. All right. Awesome. Now for one of my favorite parts of the program. All right. We're going to talk about your five favorite things. You ready? I'm ready. All right. What is your favorite tool to help you get things done? Slack, without a doubt. What is your favorite resource to go to for industry information? Careerwise.ca, which is a career development resource from SARIC. What is the first concert you ever attended? <laughs> So it was the Paul Simon Graceland tour with my grade school friend Kara and her parents in 1987. Wow, rocking out with Kara and her parents. I'm sure it was a great time. Lisa, what was your favorite concert that you've ever been to? So the Aerosmith concert where Metallica and the Black Crows were the opening acts. And that was at the CNE. And what is your favorite piece of advice that you'd give to a young professional just starting out? So there's so much advice that's out there about what people should do. And I'm, I'm the mother of young adults that uh, are also trying to navigate this in their own accord. So I would say, don't prepare for a future that someone else wants for you. To look for your own personal clues, be curious and shape your own future of work, and then find out who can help you achieve that that it's okay to strike out and cause your own path to unfold and that there's a really small steps that you can take that will get you there. So don't underestimate the power of small steps. You don't always have to make big moves. Awesome advice to wrap things up. Lisa Taylor, I have taken so many great notes. Like I said earlier, I think I am the person who really benefits the most from these podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us on the Insights at Work podcast. It's been my pleasure, and I got a lot out of our conversation too. And this is the part of the podcast where I thank everyone for listening in. I know it's tough to find time to carve out for thought leadership, and I appreciate you, the listener, for making the time for us. Anything we can do to help ourselves get better at something is time well spent. On our next episode, we'll be talking with more HR experts about today's most important HR issues. I'm Jeff Livingston. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be kind. We'll see you soon on our next episode of ADP's Insights at Work.